uh, for all of you uh, that uh, didn't get my first welcome. Welcome and welcome. Hello, hello. Um, this is a, a fun time in our church. We're in the middle of a, of a worship series called Come See, Go and Tell. Uh, and that's from the, uh, we're actually walking through the Gospel of Matthew, believe it or not. Uh, more of a survey than a chapter by chapter. So we're already kind of getting into chapter 21. We're on the final march uh, today, uh, so to speak, to the, to the cross. And this will bring us through to about the uh, end of August, and then we'll have a fall kickoff series. That's going to be a lot of fun, too. But we, um, Jerry and I, when we put this together, we were like, we just want to come and see Jesus. We want to be at his feet. We want to bring all of you along uh, as well. And just hear the teachings. Just simply go through a gospel and listen to how Jesus interacts with his disciples, with the crowds, uh, with the Pharisees, with the religious muckety-mucks. You know, what is, he, what is he teaching them? What is he convicting them? And that we would leave here with a story to tell. As I said to the first service, uh, you, do, you, you all didn't come to church today. How many of you thought that you're, you, you're coming to church? You didn't come to church. You are the church. We come here to be equipped, to hear the gospel, to, to confess our sins, and to be made new by the assurance of pardon, but then to leave here, just as I told the kids, as lights, to leave here with the truth, with a story to tell, to tell folks about who Jesus is, uh, so that they too can know about the joy that you have. So as you think about that, when you get ready for church, and you're like, I'm going to church, you're not coming to church, you're coming here to be a part of the body of Christ. And so that you are equipped and go be the church to other folks. I know that's a fun little, obviously we're a church, but I just want you to understand that, that is, that's the whole thrust of the gospel here is for us to go and tell. We don't want to just kind of sit in the pews with this. We want to let people know about this good and awesome news. So in the Old Testament, as we get started today, you're like, wait a second, you said you were going to talk about Matthew. How did you switch to the Old Testament? I wasn't ready for that. But as we talk about today, I'm going to set us up. We are in Matthew chapter 21, and, uh, and there's some things happening there. But before we get there, in the Old, Old Testament, how many people, there's so many heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. Those of you in this room who have kind of meandered in and around there and maybe even studied, is there a character in the Old Testament that you like? Shout it out. Is there a hero of the faith that you're thinking, I like this person? Who? Elijah. Elijah. Very good. That's a, that's a nice one. Ruth. Ruth. Wonderful. Others? Abraham. Abraham. Always the standard, the gold standard. Blessed to be a blessing. Any others? No. Moses. No. Noah. Esther. Esther. David. <laughs> you cheated. Susie cheated. She was at the first service. Yes. All of that. Actually, everyone that Everyone that y'all mentioned, those are great. I mean, uh, the stories of, the, of, of faith and, and perseverance of all the people that you mentioned, my goodness, that, that's a sermon in and of itself individually. I want to draw our attentions to David. David's one of my favorites. I like David a lot because David was a huge big deal. Everyone put your hands out like this. He was a big deal. David was a big deal. J uh, the Lord himself said, from your line, from your family, from a stump is going to come sprout uh, uh, the Messiah. Like from your line, big things are going to happen. 
And so David is a really, really huge deal, but his beginnings were not that huge. So in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, what happens is Samuel's a prophet, and there is a leader, Saul, who's doing awful things. He's just bad news bears. And, and, and God says to Samuel, okay, we need to kind of redo, and I'm going to send you to the house of Jesse, and you're going to anoint someone there to be the new king. While the existing king is still leading. Samuel scratches his head and says, I don't know if I like that idea, because as soon as he sees me walking over, I'm dead. God gives him instructions, and he's on his way. So he goes to the house of Jesse. Jesse's got a lot of sons. Samuel walks in and sees the oldest son. He thinks, I'm done. I got it. We can do this. I'm going to anoint the oldest son. The oldest son is very special. Surely the oldest son is going to get God's anointing because oldest sons are awesome. I'm the oldest son. I know this to be true. But God says, oh, no, 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 no. Not him. Samuel's like, okay, fine. And then another son comes. And so he's thinking, okay, this, this one. Yeah, him. God's like, no, no, not him either. And so son after son comes and everyone, God's like, no, 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 wrong. <clears throat> Next, no. And so finally, Samuel looks to Jesse and says, you got any more? You have, is there any more in your house? Because I got nothing here. And Jesse says to Samuel, well, we have our youngest, youngest son, and he's out tending sheep, but are you serious? I mean, not David. And Samuel, one of my favorite lines in scripture, says, go get him. We will stand and wait until he comes. Again, as a teacher, I just, it reminds me of being in a classroom. Like, I'll wait till everyone gets quiet. Like, I feel like that's what Samuel did. He's just being irritated by all the sons he had to go through. He's like, you know what? We'll all just stand, and we'll wait until God's anointed comes. And so David comes in, not much to look at. The scripture says he's handsome, he's ready. And God said, he's the one. Rise up. And David is not much to look at, but, boy, he goes on to do extraordinarily awesome things. And the famous Samuel text to guide us today is this. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks to the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, David was a big deal. Received the anointing from Samuel to be the next ruler, head of, of the house of Israel here. And so he's huge. And, and he goes on and he slays the giant. He, and the, he, he hears Goliath uh, bad-mouthing God, and he has this great just testimony of faith, thinking like, I can take this giant down because he's bad-mouthing God, and anyone who bad-mouths God is going down. I don't care how big they are, he's going down. And it's just huge, this awesome stuff that he does. And he rises to power, and he bleeds the people, and, and everything's great. Then one day, David, out on his little lanai, whatever you want to call it, out on his little porch, He's minding his own business, nice sunny day, and he's kind of looking around and looks down, and oh, hey, and here is this woman bathing naked, Bathsheba, on the couple floors beneath where he's at. Now, being a man of God, he quickly shuttered his blinds and went inside. No. What he did was call upon her to come up to his room, not for coffee, not for tea, called her up to his room to have relations. And then we get into this very Mori Povich-style epic because she is with child now, with David's child. And, oh, she's also married to somebody else. And David, a man after God's own heart, 
God's anointed, slayed the giant, did all these awesome things, wrote the most of the book of Psalms about prayers on how to connect with God. David works it to make sure that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is on the front lines and killed. He kills Uriah so that he can take Bathsheba as his wife and the illegitimate son now as his own. Now you would think that that would count David out. We've gone through the Old Testament. We've seen Old Testament people do dumb things and then we see how God removes the blessing, but not so with David. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks to the outward appearance, but God looks to the heart. There's something about David's heart. There's something about David's heart. When confronted with what he did, he repented. He knew that he had sinned. He was filled with sorrow and he was humbled. Today we approach the beginning of the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Today we, we leave yesterday, last Sunday's teaching on humility with the disciples. What it means to be humble, to turn and be like a child. Never lose that sense of wonder, that sense of learning. Never thinking that you're big and awesome and the great somebody, but always sitting at the feet of Jesus. And now we come into this time where Jesus is going to face now the Pharisees and have another kick-in-the-pants teaching moments with them. So where we are in the Gospel of Matthew, and, and we're going to need what we just heard about David. We're going, to need, we're going to need the teaching that God looks to the heart. So here we are in the Gospel of Matthew. We've left the teaching with the disciples. Now Jesus mounts a donkey, donkey in chapter 21, and he rides into Jerusalem. This starts the seven-day march to Easter. You can mark it out by time. It's one of the few places in Scripture where you can actually like do that, have the chronological time, Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, this March. And so he gets on a donkey and he goes, and we all know the story. There's palm prompts, like, wave, yay, Hosanna, everything's great. Then he gets off the donkey and he goes into the temple, and everything is not so great. You know what's happening at the temple? Does anyone remember? Raise your hand if you remember. You remember? Yes, the rest of thank you. What's he do at the temple? He flips tables. So if ever you say, you know, oh, God is love and everything, and he will never do that. Remember, Jesus flipped tables. It's well within his rights to flip tables. So he's flipping tables. Why is he flipping tables? The temple, the religious muckety-mucks have turned the court of Gentiles into a marketplace. The court of Gentiles were Gentiles, non-Jewish folks, are supposed to be able to come and discover who Yahweh is. The religious muckety-mucks have turned this into a marketplace. Not only a marketplace, they're exchanging money. And anytime there's an exchange of money, because you've got to pay with temple money, not with your whatever money you have, anytime there's an exchange, there is a little padding of the pockets. And Jesus comes in and sees this, and he's like, you have turned this into a den of thieves. And he flips tables and drives them all out. And the muckety-mucks are looking at this, and they're thinking, what in the world is going on? Our live stream people are getting so upset because I'm supposed to stay in this box. <laughs> I don't stay in the box. <laughs> so, then after that, there's a story. After that, there's a story where he sees a fig tree. 
There's no fruit on it. He wants fruit. Jesus wants fruit. There's no fruit. He gets upset. He curses the fig tree, and there's no fruit anymore in that tree. It's a weird story in the middle there. Actually, it connects everything. You know, you know what's really happening here? If I could take a moment of privilege, because this is not written down. What's really happening here in Matthew chapter 21, what I'm setting up, is Jesus is pulling all of the teaching points and things that he has done throughout his ministry. He's now pulling all these strings together and bringing them home. When I got ready to write this message, I was like, oh, I need this, and I need this from chapter 20, and this from chapter, and all of a sudden I had like verses out the craziness of, of what to preach on. I said, well, that's not going to happen. It'll be an hour, which, you know, is 15 minutes more than what I normally do. So, but he's bringing it all together, and the fig tree is important. But anyway, so there's the fig tree, he curses it, no fruit, it's done, it's dead. And then he goes back into the temple and begins to teach again. While he is teaching, while he is teaching, the Pharisees, religious muckety-mucks, come up and approach him and begin to question him on things. And this is where we get our sermon and our kick-in-the-pants lessons today. Remember, Samuel wrote down that God said to him that man looks to outward appearances, but God looks to the heart. And what I would say to you all today as well, Jesus looks to the heart. And thanks be to God for that. Because a heart can reveal things. It can reveal a heart of stone that wants nothing to do with the grace and the truth of who God is and who Jesus is. Or it can reveal something more deep, something more profound, a faithful heart that really wants to be with Christ. And that's what he's after, no matter what it is that you've done. The heart is where Jesus resides, where the Holy Spirit resides, where conviction and teaching all resides, and it shows up in our minds and our actions and how we interact and how we live out and be the light for folks. Today we look at Jesus looking at the heart as he teaches the Pharisees and us a profound lesson. So let's dive in. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, page 982, I think. And we're going to look at chapter 21, what I just brought us up to, verses 23 to 27. 23 to 27. Let's look and hear what has happened now. As he, so, and I want to get you in your minds. Last week, it was the disciples at his feet getting a kick in the pants lesson on humility. This week, it's the Pharisees at his feet with the disciples around. And it's going to be a lesson on repentance. Today's sermon is about repentance. Oh, joy. Make sure you write everything down. There'll be a test later. Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 to 27. Let's, let's see what's going on here. So remember, donkey, tables, tree. And we're back into the temple again in his teaching. When he entered the temple, the chief priest... And the elders, the religious muckety-mucks of the people, they came up to him, and as he was teaching, they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, what the Pharisees are asking as they come up to him, the, the elders, the chief priests, the, this, the religious people, as they come up, the rulers, they come up, they are asking him, really and truly, 
Who are you to challenge us? Who are you to challenge our prestige, our position? Who are you to challenge our customs and how we're doing things? Who are you? And Jesus, looking at them, says this. I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. And I love Jesus' response to that because in so doing, he answers their question by not answering their question. They're demanding an answer from him. Who are you? And he says, you know what? I got a better game. I'm going to ask you a question. And if you answer it right, then I'll give you my answer. There's a switch in power there. He's answering, my authority doesn't come from you at all. I've got a different set of authority coming at you. And so he poses the question. He says, the baptism of John. Now that is John the Baptist. If you remember John the Baptist, he was the guy that heralded Jesus, the voice in the wilderness calling out that Jesus is coming and he was baptizing uh, folks and repent, the kingdom is near, all the things. The baptism of John. So Jesus is actually bringing up old, like dirty laundry with these Pharisees. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And so they discussed among themselves, the Pharisees, the religious muckety-mucks, the chief priests, the elders. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd. For they all hold that John was a prophet. And so then they answered Jesus, you know what? We don't know. If you had your Bibles, you could write in here, buck, buck, because they just chickened out. <laughs> they totally chickened out. You know, they're like, mm, we're not going to answer. We, we don't know. It's like a kid at, taking a test, a Scantron test, doesn't know what to do, and the answer is C, all the way down the middle. That's exactly what they did. Like, nope, Christmas tree this. We don't know. And Jesus says to them, well, then I ain't going to tell you. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Notice the Pharisees' approach and question. Their real question is, who are you to challenge us? Who are you to create a following? Who are you to drive out our business from our temples? Who are you to do this? And notice their continued blindness. They, are continued, they continue to walk in darkness of their own of their own kingdom that they have manifested. Every time that Jesus has done a miracle, they've discounted it as something from the devil. When Jesus made water to wine, how could you be upset by that? Water to wine's a good thing. Come on. No, but I mean, they really did discredit everything that he did. Any teachings that he did, his theology, they always challenged him on it and tried to undo what it is that he was saying. The religious mechanics, they understand justice but they don't understand it in the way that God has authored it. They understand it as an opportunity for them to judge folks for their sins. Whereas Jesus is saying, ah, that's not what, what righteousness and justice is. And so he has this conversation with them, and he wants to hold up a mirror. He's like, okay, I will give you the truth of who I am, but you have got to own up to what you did. You've got to own up to what you did. 
And so he goes into this parable, the parable of the two sons, verses 28 and following in Matthew, still on the same page. And he says, okay, let's do it this way. What do you think? A man had two sons. And when he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. Now, if my son said, I will not, there would not be, there would be more, <laughs> there would be more red letters from me after that. The son says, I will not. Ah, but afterward, he changed his mind. If you've got your own Bibles, underlying changed his mind, and he went. Verse 30, and he went to the other son and said the same. And he got the answer from the second son. Oh, yes, sir, I'll go. Oh, that's great. Yes, giggity, giggity, goo. Let's go and do that. But the second son never went. Now, Jesus asked them, which of the two did the will of his father? And the religious Machimachs answer correctly, the first. But then Jesus gives them this rebuke. And so I have to understand here that even though they answered correctly, they are still not seeing themselves in this story. They are still valuing the justice and the judgment of the second son versus realizing that he, Jesus, is calling them out to be the second son to be the son that says, oh, I'll do the will of the father, but then doesn't do a ding-dong thing about it. The second son who says, oh, I'll do everything that you've called me to do, God, but do it in my own way and do it in the way that I have authored and the truth that I want to have. And so then Jesus says to them, <clears throat> I say to you, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, all the ne'er-do-wells, they believed John the Baptist. And even when you saw that, the power of the, of the testimony of John the Baptist and what he was doing, you still didn't change your minds and believe him. When David had his big oopsies with Bathsheba, and was trying to live a life now with this illegitimate son and this illegitimate marriage because her husband was tragically killed by his hand. His friend Nathan comes up to him. And Nathan begins to do the same thing that Jesus does with the, with the religious Machidimachs. Nathan looks at David and he says, let me tell you a story, David. And begins to tell him the story about how this guy sinned against the Lord, how he did these awful things, and, and how, how much of an of a awful person he is. And David, hearing this story, gets totally riled up. And he's like, well, that person has sinned against God, and he ought to be judged, and all, all the things. And he's just righteous. And I imagine Nathan taking David by the arms and pulling him close and saying, David, you are the man. You're the one in this story because of what you did with Bathsheba. And God knows. And so instantly, when Nathan says that to David, you're the man, David falls to his knees in repentance. He realizes the error of his ways and, and, and has sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, I, God hears you. He's still with you. You still have favor with him, but you're going to have consequences for this. There will be consequences for this. And the, the illegitimate son actually dies. And David mourns, and as soon as the son dies, 
He gets up, he puts on new clothes, he worships God, and he begins the next part of his life. He's a man after God's own heart. There's something inside of David that got him to realize that he was the person in the story. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here, you're the man. You are the second son. And they still don't get it. What is our kick in the pants teaching today from this? Whenever uh, anyone preaches on the issue of the Pharisees, chief priests, scribes, the disciples, the Jewish folks, and them all messing up and doing wrong things, there is always a danger that when we hear that in the 21st century, we think, oh, you stupid Pharisees. Oh, you stupid Jewish people. In fact, that's a lot where anti-Semitism kind of comes out of. I warn you on this because I think Jesus is teaching not only the disciples, the Pharisees, but us, that it is not too far of a fall to fall into the rhythm of the Pharisees. The Pharisees who were studied guys, they learned, they studied scripture, they devoted their lives to Yahweh, to God, and to teaching others about him. At some point, there was this, this earnestness in them to want to honor the Lord. But as time has gone on, they begin to realize, just, I don't need God. I've got a great sweet deal going on right here. In fact, I'll just take bits and pieces of God, and I will fashion that into uh, a near God. For us, we do this, we take bits and pieces of Jesus, and we have a close Christ that, that we follow. And anytime that you do that and you mold things into what you want it to be, you've now created an idol, and you're into that idol worship of not following the Lord at all. And so I think the story is here, right here in the middle of everything going on, to call out to us all that any one of us can fall into this. Because we all know that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned. So everyone, it is our natural tendency to want to be our own people. And so in this journey to the cross, there is this teaching that if you don't have a heart that can turn and change its mind, that can turn and repent, you are not a part of this kingdom. That cursing of the fig tree in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about a tree that you know it's a good tree that is teaching right stuff because it bears good fruit. A bad tree with false prophets bears no fruit at all and is cut off. And right here in Matthew 21, he curses a fig tree and says, never will you produce fruit again. He is saying that if you do not turn, if you do not have that change of heart, that change of mind, you are not of me. You are not of this kingdom, and you'll be cast out. In fact, he goes on and has a parable. It's called the parable of the tenants, and then says to the Pharisees, okay, let me say it to you this way. There's this parable of the tenants of a vineyard, and the landowner gives it to the tenants to work, and then sends representatives to get the kickback from their work, and they kill the representative. 
And so the landowner sends another representative, and then they kill that guy. And that's kind of like the prophets. God sending a prophet into the world to, to reap the harvest, and they kill the prophets. And so finally, in the parable of the tenants, the landowner sends his son. And they look at the son, and they thought, you know what? We can kill him, get, our own, get his inheritance for ourselves. Everything's going to be great. Jesus is laying out for the religious machidimax everything that they are going to do if they don't turn. Every, all the events leading up to the cross are them betraying God's own son so that they can keep their power, their prestige, and their place in this world. And he gives them the chance to turn, and they don't. Which leads us to the second kick in the pants teaching, the good news in all of this. How great is the grace of our Christ that he would take the time with the religious muckety-mucks and give them a chance to turn. There's still time. You can turn from these ways. And not only turn like we talked about last week, but turn and change your mind. That change your mind that I had you underline there in the parable of the sons, that's Greek for repentance. To completely have a change of mind and action and direction and then follow in the ways of the Lord. He is saying that even the Pharisees can do this if they have the heart to do it. Because Jesus looks to the heart, doesn't look to outward appearances. And so this is great news for us all. Because it means he's not looking at the report card of all of our wickedness. He's looking at our heart. And if you have placed a faith in Christ... If you have the Holy Spirit within your heart and is dwelling there richly, he is continually calling out to you to redirect when you go off the beaten path. And there is still time to repent. Moreover, to repent and continuously repent and continuously be humble as a way of, of sanctifying us into the image of Christ. Do you feel that the Pharisees deserve salvation? even though they signed the death certificate for Jesus. Raise your hand if you feel they deserve salvation if they repent. Great. What if you had a loved one? What if it was your child? That someone came and took them and took their life. And they went to jail and someone discipled them there and they had a true repentance and professed Christ as their Lord and Savior. Does that person deserve salvation? Raise your hand. See? Yes. Yes. Great. But me? Woo, that would be hard. When I was a youth pastor in Florida, tragically, a family at our church, their grandchild, was walking home from school and ran away from her brother and rounded the corner and in that instant, someone picked her up. Picked her up, took her life, amongst other things. And it rocked, rocked the town. It rocked the church. And they, fi they, ca they caught the guy, and, and, and justice was swift, and he went to jail. And then my students were like, because they were a part of it in the church, and they, and they said, Mike, are you saying that if this guy, because they all wanted to damn this guy to, to, to the outer parts of hell, and I had to have a chance to try to teach him, and they're saying, you're telling me that if he repents, if he has a true repentance and belief in Christ, 
He gets to go to heaven after what he did? I said, that's what scriptures is pointing to. He'll account for his sins for sure. But a full conversion, a full washing clean of my sins means it's a wash clean for even the most vilest if their heart is for the Lord. David killed Uriah's or Bathsheba's husband and still found favor with God. I think of all of our students now, people in the world right now, as we look at the shootings that Bob prayed for, as we look at Uvalde Elementary School, I know that after that, there was a part of me that thought there is a special place in the bad place for that guy to take those innocent lives. And I need to repent from that. Because that's not the posture. That's not the posture of those who believe in Christ. The posture is we ought to want and pray for the salvation of that individual because all life is in God's hands and God has got this all under control. And if that person can truly turn, if that person can truly repent and find salvation at the foot of cross, then thanks be to God because that shows how powerful the gospel is in light of our human sin. So that second kick in the pants is true. Heartfelt repentance is always honored and blessed and it is never too late. It is never too late. Who are we to say to God, this person gets salvation and this person doesn't? So Jesus taking the time with the religious muckety-mucks and giving them a chance to answer correctly, but they don't. A heart that isn't for Christ is closed off and just wants a near Christ idol worship life that's lifeless and faithless but a heart that's truly sold out for the Lord, that has turned and is following in that direction. That's a heart that God is after and a repentance that he blesses. Let me leave you with this. In Hebrews chapter 12, there is a great depiction of what this action of turning and repentance looks like. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 6 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, a great cloud of heroes of the faith who were faulty. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Look at this. This is the directional change. There's a body directional change, a mind directional change, and a heart directional change in this passage. Lay aside and run the race. Set aside the old ways and run towards Christ. Keep our minds and eye looking at Jesus, considering everything that he did. And that way you do not grow weary or faint-hearted. And at the end of this passage, this little pericope, all of this is for the fact that we would produce fruit that is peaceful and righteous. To be a good tree with good teaching, not a false prophet who preaches a near Christ. Jesus looks to the heart. Thanks be to God for that. Because I know I have a report card of wickedness and whew, 
than under. <laughs> and I'm sure you all do as well. But the Lord knows me by name and I know him. I have engraven on my heart the emblem of the family of Christ, co-heirs with Jesus, a Holy Spirit who calls to my heart to redirect, to turn when I go off track. I need to be aware that I could be just like the Pharisees, a, a pastor just like them and can fall just like them, but have faith in knowing that Jesus looks to the heart, a heart that he has claimed for his own and that repentance is never too late and always honored. What's your go and tell this week for this? That there is an urgency for salvation for people to know. That even the most wicked and the most vile that may be around your, your lives, don't look to your neighbor. No, but I mean, there, there could be people that need to hear that repentance is never too late and that even them, no matter what they have done, can experience the salvation of Christ. So go and tell people that. Go and tell people that Jesus looks to the heart. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, I thank you for your, your many, many blessings, and I thank you for hard teachings, teachings that do kick us in the pants to get us out from the pews and to send the light to people, to share that with people so that they know the grace and truth of, of who you are and that you're calling folks by, by name and writing on their hearts your righteousness. Lord, embolden us and give us courage to do that with great joy and urgency of spirit to let folks know that there's, there's still time, there's still time, and that God is looking for them. Lord, may we stand and wait for that day when you call us all together and let us be surprised and blown away by, by the folks that have responded and that we would give thanks to you and glory to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.